Welcome everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying happy and I hope that you're staying safe. My guest today joins me via Zoom from his basement. Jay Baruchel has been acting since the age of 12 and has appeared in everything from Knocked Up and Tropic Thunder to The Trotsky and She's Out of My League to the action fantasy The Sorcerer's Apprentice and the wild comedy This Is The End. He's probably best known as the voice of Hiccup in the wildly successful How to Train Your Dragon franchise, but, he says, despite all the success in front of the camera, what he really wants to do is direct. And direct he does. Two years ago, he wrote and directed the sports comedy Goon, Last of the Enforcers. Now he appears both in front of and behind the camera in Random Acts of Violence, a genre film that asks serious questions about how we relate to violence in art. Based on a 2008 image comic, Random Acts of Violence begins with comic book writer Todd, played by Jesse Williams, suffering a case of writer's block. His series, a grisly but successful adaptation of a real-life serial killer dubbed Slasher Man, is coming to an end, and he doesn't know how to wind it down. On a press tour from Toronto to New York to promote the final issue, Jesse and friends visit the scene of the Slasher Man's crimes. As the group fall victim to a series of heinous copycat crimes, the film asks, what are the real-life consequences when life and death begin to imitate art. Is any of this uh, getting your creative juices flowing, you All know? Right, give it a rest. This could be the scene of a massacre. Final yes. issue starting to fucking get into your head now? No. It's my um, fucking it's, job, man. It's coming, all right? That's the whole point of me designing, you know, the fucking road trip, all right? It's just like tingle, stimulate some inspiration. Final issue inspiration is the objective. Right or, now. conversely, it doesn't have to be the last issue, buddy. It's the last, we've talked about it, man. I'm fuck, I can't, it's not healthy. We started by reminiscing about the before time when we could go to the movies. I asked him what movie memories stand out for him when he thinks back to the theater experience. This is what he had to say. Seeing Starship Troopers on the opening night at the uh, Faubourg in Montreal, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it was that rare thing of just, yeah, it sold out and everyone in the room had decided this was going to be a fun night. We were all just like, you know, and everyone just kind of buys in, you know, and to the point where like there was a trailer before it for the Roland Emmerich Godzilla and that trailer got an ovation. And it was just like, it was that it never happens, but it was like a Fantasia screening at a multiplex. And, right. um, and then that movie does not disappoint in any way. And so like, it was a real crowd pleaser and and yeah that 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 was a special one that that was that was one i definitely like oh that's why you go to the movies yeah i remember being at the promo screening for the first batman movie and it's the first time anyone had seen it pre-internet so nobody had seen clips there's you know the odd picture here and there you saw in the newspaper or whatever uh but that was it and that place uh was it, it felt like it was about to burst into flames people were so excited I can that's imagine. So that's cool. really cool. That's a cool that, and there would be one slight asterisk one because it wasn't public, but when, in my first year working in Los Angeles, um, and I had become recent friends with uh, Seth Rogen, and he was like, "Hey, uh, tonight I'm going to a screening of a of a 
rough cut of a movie I was in last year called Donnie Darko. Do you want to come t- come see it? And I got to go, and so I got to see. I got to see it with, um, yeah, with a whole bunch, whole bunch of different music mm. that didn't get to make it into the final thing, and, right. the, and the VFX weren't finished. And, um, but it deeply affected me. And I spent the next year telling everybody this movie is coming out, and you have to see it. And so I was part of the cult before the cult started. You've been acting since you were twelve, but you say you've always wanted to direct. Why is that? Oh, because um, I I realized. Um, I, I realized the most fun thing in the world was, was, was creating a story. Mm. And I, and I think it started with writing short stories in like grade three and, and being like, Oh, I, I love reading comics and I love reading stories. It's even cooler to make them myself because <laughs> I get to do them, the characters that I want to see and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, and then my parents showed me uh, road warrior kind of around that same time um and uh explained to me i was really lucky in that my parents would give me a kind of film or music 101 whenever Mm -hmm. they would show me something they'd explain to me why it matters why they care about it what the landscape that it came out was like and then of course then they would get into sort of inside jokes you know like they'd also show me like monty python the holy grail and pause after every punchline to be like do you understand why that's funny now this is called dry humor they literally lit verbatim they would this is called dry humor so you know and uh, um and then dad bought me ferris bueller's day off on vhs for my ninth birthday and that started my collection that i'm still crippled by because i still buy physical media yeah. um uh, but but i've never stopped and and somewhere in there i realized that like as much as i adore writing stories i realized that i wanted to uh that the movies were the thing man and 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 i guess like my imagination was consistently captured by movies and mm-hmm. my parents would my dad would rent a movie every Friday and Saturday night and I'd get up early the next morning. And if the tape was still in the VCR, it meant it was okay for me to watch it. If it was back in its case, it was too racy. And so what this means is that throughout all of elementary school, I watched like a minimum of two, sometimes four or five movies a weekend, every single weekend. And it just got drilled into me. You're listening to my interview with Random Acts of Violence director, Jay Baruchel. You mentioned The Road Warrior. You got to shadow George Miller for a couple of weeks. That must have been an education all in its own. The movie didn't end up getting made, but you had to learn from that. Oh my God, man. It was like, it's it's one of the happiest periods of my life, truly. Like, Two, two, two weeks in Sydney, Australia at Kennedy Miller headquarters and the character I'm playing is called Max. Mm. So anytime he'd refer to it, so having George Miller call you Max is like all you'd ever want. Um, and, and then just like getting to pick his brain and be around the process. Um, it was just so, so special. And his whole, his thing with us was like, it's taken for granted that we're going to take the stunts and the VFX seriously on this movie. Um, some, for some reason, it's not taken for granted that we're going to treat the acting just as uh, seriously. So, so they took a really like, I, I'm saying like deep cut drama school approach to this stuff. Like the first time we did a table read, they told us, don't just say your dialogue. You have to say your character's name and then the word says before the line. Mm. 
and they said, this is to remove yourself from this document. They pick it up and say, this is just paper. This is just paper. This isn't you. Right. So I'd be the army hammer, be like Batman says, and then say the line. And, you know, and, and, and it's fucking weird, but I understood it. And I respected and appreciated the effort to treat what we were creating as seriously as, as anything else. And, and then, you know, he was super, super encouraging. And when he found out that I wanted to make movies, which I think I, I volunteered pretty early and, you know, I, I'm not good about that. I often weird my heroes out by like dumping it on them right away. And I went off and I should probably just wait till after I've like, after I get along with them. Right. But like, I think I told him right away how important he was to me and, and in the scope of my life and, and to my parents. And so there was this moment where he said, you know, when we make this, if we make this thing, he's like, I'd like you to be here the whole time so that you can shadow me on set. Like, uh, like I did for Mel with Thunderdome and like, that that's as good a film education as there is on on, on the planet. Um, so, so when the thing didn't happen, it was like, you know, I'm I'm, I've had movies and shit not happen before. It doesn't. It's usually water off a duck's back. This one, this was a hard one. It's interesting that you talk about having films not happen. Random acts of violence was close a few times. You started writing it in 2011 got really close a few times, and then for whatever reason, the money would evaporate or, or things. How do you stay focused on a project for almost 10 years, for nine years in this case? It's at the same time, very difficult and very easy. Mm -hmm. It's very easy, um, and this is gonna sound super hokey, but it's very easy if you dig the thing and you believe in it. Right. And and that does the heavy lifting for you, right? That That gives you your, that that helps you get your chin um but you also just need a fucking chin because it's like there are very few first round knockouts in cinema it's it's a it's it's decision at 12 rounds every fucking time and you're gonna eat shit through whole you know five six whole rounds you're gonna eat it as much as you give it out and it's got to be worth it it's got to be at the end of the day this thing is worth the trouble they not they're not all worth the trouble there, there's, you know, there, there's shit that I have, you know, been a part of that the fates dictated wasn't supposed to be a thing, and 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 I and I didn't need to fight to 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 keep it going because it it wasn't a sort of baby of mine. But a small movie like this only succeeds if it's somebody's baby, if somebody is willing at the end of the day to like mortgage their house to make it, which I was at every step of this movie, and um and and so. I guess it just comes down to belief, belief in the thing. And, and we were like, we were very kind of precious too. Like we weren't willing to, we could have made this thing in different iterations twice over. Um, but what would have been required to make it in those ways um, was a bridge too far for us every time creatively. And at the end of the day, we'd look at ourselves and like, would we rather not make the movie than make it in a way that isn't the way that we think it should be? And, and, and that's not always going to be like that. But for this one, we were like, we did something special and I'd rather the document receive it, retain its integrity. This one is a tricky one, right? Because it's really meta. It is a movie that is uh, about violence that has violence in it but it's asking us to question why we look at violence as entertainment. 
And so you've got it kind of, it's almost like it's folding back in on itself uh, a little bit because you have to figure out how am I going to show um, violence? The stabbing scene in the car has, I can still hear it even uh, after a a week since I've seen the film, right? But what I think it does is it makes us confront our feelings towards the violence. When we watch it in the film and and, and there are, things in the film that are, are incredibly brutal, but we have to question, why do we look at this as hmm. this cruelty as entertainment? As a filmmaker, that's a pretty thin uh, and tricky uh, line <laughs> yeah. to walk. <laughs> yeah, in, indeed, and, 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 I, and, I, and I know there are people that will think that we didn't stick the landing or that we fell prey to the things we're discussing, um, and, and, and that's, and I get that, and I and I, but I I, it was it's, I think it starts from it being, kind of uh, a dialectic more than more than than didactic. Now, like the, the film definitely moralizes. It has some stuff it thinks is right and some stuff it thinks is wrong. Absolutely, but I also think it tries to ask questions um, that I have asked myself because I'm a lifelong consumer of true crime, mm-hmm. uh, lifelong consumer, almost, almost lifelong consumer of genre uh, s- cinema and, and literature. And, 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 and I have to, and I had, I had, I've had moments throughout that where I have like been kind of faced with asking myself, what is that experience that I'm getting and, 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 and chasing as well. And, yeah. and, and the first time I thought about this shit was, and I read Anne Rule's uh, Green River Killer book. And I, I think in terms of true crime, she, she does it right. The requisite amount of compelling uh, and mystery uh, and, 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 and humanity, as well as always, always, always with a tremendous degree of responsibility. And her Green River book is really, in the end, it functions as um, a, a collection of bios of every one of his victims. He occupies almost no emotional real estate in the book. The book is these, a bunch of biographies of different women, all who meet the same end. Um, And it is a really hard read. And she says at the start of it, that it's important for people to remember that these aren't data. These Mm -hmm. aren't numbers. These were actual someone's friend, sister, mom daughter and 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 to know that he occupies the least amount of import in the whole thing and and that was the first time it had been framed like that for me mm-hmm. and and because i could name a whole bunch of serial killers the world over like they're rock stars but i can't name most of the people that they murdered and, and it follows that I can name Jason, Freddie, Michael Myers. I can't name most of the people that they murdered either. That seems to be versions of the same phenomenon to me. And I was like asking, what is that? Why, why are we paying attention to the grandeur of the deed as opposed to what that experience of suffering that deed would be? And And I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. And I don't know that being interested in it is wrong in and of itself. You're listening to my interview with Random Acts of Violence director, Jay Baruchel. I wonder though, in totality, what the cumulative effect of that is on me. 
in, in, in consuming the media that I've consumed and seeing women portrayed in cinema, in literature, in music videos, um, seeing the space they occupy there, seeing the space they occupy in true crime is like, have I, do, are they victims before they even realize it? Does our culture, does, our, does the entirety of our male gaze culture imbue them with, with victimhood from the get-go? And I just started getting into these sort of questions about kind of what the responsibility is as an audience member, what my responsibility is as a member of society, and then what my responsibility is as a creator. Because I, you know, I, I grew up during the Columbine shit when everyone was like, oh yeah, Marilyn Manson and Doom made these kids kill a bunch of people. And that's, that's absurd and nonsensical. Equally absurd though to me is the concept that we have no responsibility for anything we put out there. I think that's horseshit. Like I think you have carte blanche creatively, absolutely. But you don't have, that, that doesn't mean you're devoid of any of the strings that connect you to it. That, that, that's insane to me. Like, I, I think that, and this is proven by the fact that we vote behind a curtain. We vote behind a curtain so that if we choose to keep our shit to ourselves, we can. But if you, if you make it public, I think you have to debate it. I think if you put something out there, you absolutely are responsible because you've chosen, you've elected to make this a thing people are now thinking about. So you are responsible to it in some degree. To what degree, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. At the very least, the push and pull and these questions, I think, are fertile kind of stuff to mine a story in a, in a debate from. Well, I used to think that the appeal of true crime was that we would go to uh, a movie theater and, and watch In Cold Blood or, or a film like that, or we would watch something on television. And we felt safe in those situations and we were still getting that dopamine rush i think that people uh uh, that comes along with seeing something exciting or or scary or whatever it might be Uh, but we feel safe in those situations but as the entertainment has gotten more extreme you're right i mean i think that uh there's a question and you you answer it i don't know that it's it's asked in the movie. I don't know if it's answered in the movie really about the responsibility of, of the creator. And there's a couple of lines. Kathy says uh, to, um, uh, to Todd in the film, and I'm just doing this from memory, says something like uh, you fetishize death and that's got one of our friends killed. Yeah. And and so it's pointing a finger directly back to it. uh, But is it enough? Yeah, I, I, you know, so it's, it's, to me, I was interested in examining what happens when someone who has mined the victim experience, um, has, has, has mined it in an arguably like exploitative way. Mm-hmm. Um, what would that look like when that shit comes home to roost? You know, when, when it affects you in the ivory tower. You know, and because and, there, there are movies to this day, there's a very big film last year that has a lot of great fans that I think is like close to reprehensible mm-hmm. because it talks about real shit that happened and, um, and does a sort of uh, alternate history. And, and I think it's a kind of, I don't know how else to say it other than um, if, if I had a loved one that uh, was taken from this world in the most brutal fashion possible, I would be at the very least somewhat uh, offended 
if mm-hmm. someone fucked about with their story um, and had fun telling it, it wouldn't sit well with me. It just wouldn't. And I, and, and now again, that act isn't wrong in and of itself, but I definitely think, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that I've seen some shit out there that cheapens the human condition because, and it's, and it's not about the degree of violence. It's not how harsh or violent it is. It's what's behind the violence. You're listening to my interview with Jay Baruchel, director of Random Acts of Violence. There's a great movie that uh, Pods made called Les Sept Jours du Talion, Seven Days. Um, and it's as harsh a film as I've ever seen. It's a dad torturing a pedophile that murdered his daughter. Okay. Right. That is not a fucking fun day at the office. It's a really harsh movie. It's really, really brutal. Never once does it feel irresponsible and never once does it feel cheap. It feels like it's taken with the requisite amount of um, respect to the subject matter, solemnity, you know, and, and the entire kind of motivation seems to be an answer to, um, to revenge films that let you get your rocks off in an easy way. And it was like, well, you can still do that if you want. No one's saying you shouldn't do that. But by the way, if you do that, this is probably what it would actually feel like. And, you know, and so it was kind of like that is the stuff I was trying to talk about. But yeah, I, I, I think there, I, I am not certain what the exact metric is. To what, but I know that we are responsible, and every single one of us. And I have, a, just as I have a responsibility to my neighbor down the street, when we have responsibility to the rest of my citizenry, we put shit out. It's going to affect people, and you know, you you can't be surprised. Uh, you can't you can't be surprised or shocked when it comes back to your fucking door. That was Jay Baruchel talking about his new movie, Random Acts of Violence. You can find it on VOD wherever you legally rent or download movies. It's a way with being My next guest joins me via Zoom from his home in Dublin. Mike Scott is the founding member, lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter of the Water Boys. He is a restless creative spirit known for radical changes in musical style throughout what he refers to as his, quote, allegedly unorthodox, end quote, career. The music on his solo albums and with the Waterboys explores a number of different styles, including folk, Celtic, and rock and roll, fusing them all together to create a sound that is not only really catchy, but utterly unique. The press release for his newest record, Good Luck Seeker, says the songs are populated by unrepentant freaks, soul legends, outlaw film stars, and 20th century mystics, drawing inspiration from The Stones, Kate Bush, Sly and Kendrick, as well as Mike Scott's very own musical past. It's a genre-busting effort with epic songs like the dramatic spoken word tune My Wanderings in the Weary Land to the earworm of the extremely catchy single The Soul Singer. In this interview, we talk about lots of stuff. We talk about the construct of time, the power of The Clash, and why he liked a record by Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Tish, enough to spend eight and sixpence, or about 50 cents, on it. I began the interview by asking Mike Scott why he's never made the same record twice. Here's what he had to say. I like to keep changing. 
mm. Richard. And I grew up listening to artists like Dylan and the Beatles and Neil Young. Yeah, I'm a child of the 60s when music changed vastly over a period of five or six years. So to me, it's normal that music should keep changing. And I, it, it, I feel if there isn't some progression going on in Waterboy's music, there's something wrong. And, and I think I've had a few periods when there wasn't enough progression, but now isn't one of those. Do you think that it's something that you, you have to push for, or is, is it just a wandering creative spirit? Does it just happen organically? Kind of just happens, but I have yeah. to maintain a sense of exploration and experiment. I've got to keep pushing my own boundaries. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, have, have you found that music and or writing music has been some sort of solace for you or, or helped maybe work through any anxiety you might have been feeling? No, I haven't been. Well, I, I, anxiety. I don't really have a lot of personal anxiety around the pandemic. I'm more concerned about whether the, the center will hold, as WB Yeats might have said. Mm -hmm. So far it is holding, but I think only just. Yeah. Uh, for me, my experience has been 50% of the time parenting with my seven-year-old daughter and the rest of the time working on music. And after I finished Good Luck Seeker, uh, I made the next Waterboys album, which was made in January, February, March. It's finished. And it'll have to wait now for a year before we can release it. And I've also remixed and remastered our appointment with Mr. Yates album from 2011. So that will be reissued in the autumn. I didn't realize that you had these records stacked up so far in advance. By the time something like this comes out, because I think the release date for Good Luck Seeker is August 21st. Uh, right. You made it months before. Is it old news to you by then? Have you already moved on and you've written a new batch of songs and, and it, it, it feels like it's not the next thing, so it's not the most interesting thing to you? Well, fortunately, somewhere along the way, I discovered that time is an illusion. I, I can think myself back into whatever record I want or whatever stage of my own life I need to. Uh, and, and honestly, Good Luck Seeker, it might have been finished six months ago, but it's not really old to me. I've had some records where, where the tracks were seven or eight years old before they came out. So this is a luxury. You're listening to my interview with Mike Scott from The Waterboys. It doesn't feel ever to you like you have a catalog of your life. When you hear a record from 15 years ago, from beyond that, that you can be transported back to a time and a place? Well, of course they do. But it's not such an unusual experience because everybody has that experience with other people's songs. Mm. You know, and I hear records from the, the 60s or 70s or 80s that take me back to whatever I was doing then, whether they're my records or not. Now that there is no live music for us to go out and see, uh, can you think back to a particularly memorable live concert, whether it was one of yours that you were performing or yeah. a show that changed your life in some way? I think seeing The Clash in 1977. Yeah. Well, it might I, be the first punk rock concert I went to and and I, actually, the draw for me was the support act, which was Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Yeah, yeah. I loved New York punk, and I was a huge Patti Smith fan and so on. And, and Richard was good, but then the clash came out, and it was like an army, four, a four-man army. I'd never seen energy like it on stage. You know, I'd seen The Who and The Stones, and Pink Floyd, I'd seen lots of great bands, but the clash just knocked them 
knocked them into next week. I only saw The Clash much later in mm. their career when they were playing much larger venues. And, and, things. and the show was good. The show was good. But I had read about this, this, this tidal wave of feeling that would come over you while you saw it. And that was not my experience with it. But I saw them at, I think, the wrong stage uh, in their career. Yeah, I saw them at all times, right yeah. through till shortly before they split, and they were never as good as 1977. Yeah. Still pretty good in 78. So uh, we're talking, it's nine o'clock at night, your time. You say you're splitting your time 50-50 between music and, and parenting. Uh, what is your songwriting process? Do you, is, is it like a job that you would sit down and, and write a song, or is it something you might not write a song for weeks on end, or how does it work for you? I might not write a song for weeks or months. Mm. And, and the older I get, the more I, I find I write when I need to write. You know, you, you asked me a, a few minutes ago about the new record. Was it, is it old to me? Mm -hmm. uh, and I find if I don't need to make a record, I just put the writing on pause in the back of my mind. Right. And then when I need it, it comes. It's a weird thing. For me, the idea of writing a song is uh, a mystery. It's something mystical that happens. And for you, when you started writing songs, do you recall the first songs that you wrote? And do you recall uh, what they were about and, and why, I guess, why you wrote them? Well, my first songs were sort of thinly disguised copies of songs that other people had already written, <laughs> like Bob Dylan or Mark Bowen. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I'm glad to say I quickly grew out of that. And, and songs for me, oh, before I ever wrote a song, I wanted to live in music. Mm. I wanted to be inside music. And I wanted to know, the, the big thrill for me wasn't, wasn't, oh my goodness, will we meet groupies after the concert? I was never thinking about stuff like that. I was thinking, what did John Lennon feel like when, when, he, he, when he first imagined the second verse of A Day in the Life? Yeah. I wanted to know, what was it like being in that song? What did Paul feel when he was writing Eleanor Rigby? That's what I wanted. I wanted that experience. And, and it's become my life. Mm -hmm. being in songs and when I'm writing a song I might be inside it for weeks just singing it over and over and over and whatever else I'm doing the song's going on in my mind. Um, Soul Singer uh, is so catchy and is just such a, 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 a great um, soul swing song. I, 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 it, it, I can hear it in my head right now uh, as we speak. Um, when you write a song like that and I'm not looking for, for names but is that completely out of your imagination or is it based on experience or or how does that work? It's a way with being rude Cause everyone's scared of his quicksilver moods The soul singer He's been around for 50 years Every crease of his face is a souvenir The soul singer Experience and observation of many different people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And That's, it's a time. 
you know, it's a type. And, and there are even a few lines that, that I've lived myself. In terms of, of songwriting, how much of yourself do you feel uh, obliged to expose? Or how much of yourself do you say, okay, this is my life with my family. I don't write about that. Or do you have anything that's off topic? I never think about it, Richard. Mm. No. I just write the songs and maybe maybe there's some subconscious barrier there that I won't go beyond, but I, but I haven't thought about it. I think often it's, it's in, and again, in, in situations like this where you have someone asking you questions about your creative process, it, it becomes kind of an odd thing because I often think it's best not to overthink these mm. things and, and just allow the inspiration to hit when it does and, and, and the work will be what it's going to be based on, on your frame of mind at the moment. It's, I go through phases. Sometimes I write very autobiographically. Two albums ago, uh, we did a double album called Out of All This Blue. That's much more autobiographical. Lots of my uh, romantic relationships are in that album. And the, the last, the side four of the double album vinyl version is all about meeting and courting my wife. So and very autobiographical at that time. How did she feel about uh, having bits of your life together chronicled in, in song? She was okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Let's talk then about some of the cover versions of the songs that you have written because people like Prince and Rod Stewart and Tom Jones and Steve Earle have recorded your songs. Uh, again, is that uh, something that you... Uh, that you encourage? Is that something that you love when it happens? Or is it something that is just a byproduct of, of your business? I love it. Absolutely love it, Richard, especially when they make it their own. Yeah. Sometimes I'll hear a cover version where, where I think, oh, oh, he's trying to sound like me. <laughs> and I don't like that so much. I right. like when people put their own stamp on it, like Fiona Apple's Hole of the Moon makes it completely okay. her own. The first concert that you ever went to was an Emerson, Lake and Palmer concert, but you said well, the first first great concert that you went to was Paul McCartney and Wings. Uh, yeah. What, what was the difference between the two? I think I can, I think I know, but tell me the, the difference. Well, I was a much bigger fan of Paul than I was of Emerson, Lake and Palmer. It was an older pal uh, called Frank Myrtle. And he'd been to lots of concerts. He was about three years older than me. And he thought, oh, Mike's ready to go to a concert. So he took me to see Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And I only knew one of their songs, which was called Knife Edge, because it had been on one of those sampler compilation albums that the labels right. used to do in those days. Uh, and, and I don't think they even played Knife Edge. So it was a lot of stuff I didn't know. And some parts were impressive. I still remember Keith Emerson riding his organ like a bucking bronco and throwing knives at it and all that. I, I can still remember that, but it didn't, it didn't move me so much. Yeah. It was more just a thrilling experience to be at a concert. And it was at a famous venue called uh, Green's Playhouse in Glasgow, which later was called the Apollo. It was kind of like our, um, our Fillmore East. Right, right. And this is, it was the same place where I saw Paul McCartney and Wings six months later, but of course, I loved Paul and knew him so well and I knew lots of the songs and, and, and he's a great showman. It was a fantastic gig. Last Night in Soho, Davy D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Tish was your first record that you ever bought. It was indeed. And, and what was it about that record? 
I was nine years old, Richard, and <laughs> the the record begins with a, 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 a drum, Spanish acoustic guitar, which I now know that they ripped off Jumping Jack Flash, which had been a hit a few months earlier. And then there's a sort of backwards meow, or phasey guitar. And I think I fell in love with that guitar sound. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it cost me, in, in, in British money, it cost me eight and sixpence halfpenny, which is probably about 50 cents. Well, 50 cents well spent, if you loved yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations on Good Luck Seeker. Uh, now I can't wait to hear the next one. <laughs> now that you've got, I know that there's more Waterboys music uh, tucked away waiting to be released next year. I'm excited about that as well. But in the meantime, Good Luck Seeker will spend a lot of time uh, being played around the house here. It's, uh, it's really great. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you. He's done crazy. He's suffered loss. That was my interview with Mike Scott of the Waterboys. I've been listening to the Waterboys for probably 30 years, and I will tell you, I'm a fan. I'll put the new album, Good Luck Seeker, up against any of their greatest records. It's really great stuff. It's available to buy wherever you legally download and buy music as of August 21st. Look for it there. That wraps it up for this week. I want to thank Jay Baruchel. Check out his new movie, Random Acts of Violence, on VOD right now. And Mike Scott, thanks to him for coming by. Check out Good Luck Seeker as of August 21st, wherever you legally download and buy music. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying safe. And we'll talk again soon.